You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A story from Vice President Thomas Marshall, Vice President under Wilson, relating to the 1916 election. There is an ancient story told in Indiana of the good old days when ballots were hawked around the election precinct and votes were purchased with impunity. A citizen with four boys came to the polling place. They stood around most of the day without voting, waiting for the price of ballots to go up. They finally agreed to vote the Democratic ticket for $10. After receiving the money, they still delayed. And as the contest waxed warmer, the Republicans paid them $25 for their votes. Then they voted. On being upbraided by the Democrat who had originally bought them, the old man replied, Well, we voted the Democratic ticket anyway. And on being asked how that was, he said that the family, after due consultation, thought they ought to vote the Democratic ticket, it being the less corrupter of the two. Oh, you can always count on Thomas Marshall for a good joke. Indiana really has become the same way Ohio is the birthplace of presidents. Indiana has become the birthplace of vice presidents. Now you have Thomas Marshall, you have Charles Fairbanks under TR, you have uh, Koufax under Grant, Thomas Hendricks under Cleveland, Dan Quayle under Bush, Indiana vice presidents. He was talking about the 1916 election. He also did refer to it as an ancient story, and Marshall is a bit of a jokester, so don't take him literally that that's what happened. So, we're all used to the idea of a newspaper getting the story wrong, reporting that the wrong person is elected. But in the case I'm going to talk about, it's not Dewey Beats Truman I speak of, it's the Cleveland Plain Dealer of 1916, with its huge, blaring headline, Hughes wins with a large illustration of the so-called president-elect Charles Edmund Hughes, the GOP candidate, governor of New York, most recently a Supreme Court justice who stepped down to become president, and the last bearded man to try to run for the presidency from a major party. He was supposed to be a shoe-in. Woodrow Wilson was elected in a three-way party split 
1912. It was a fluke for many. And despite a few domestic achievements that mostly Democrats would cheer about, and nothing to speak of foreign policy except an intervention in Mexico that was questioned by many, conventional wisdom was that the president would lose. This was a trying time. Two countries America was friendly with. This is the way you have to understand the beginning of World War I, where we are in 1916. Germany and Britain are now fully at war. Wilson gets elected in 1912. It's all about these good domestic issues. And now two of our nation's allies are fully at war. Wilson maintains a strict policy of neutrality. But as Vice President Thomas Marshall writes in his memoir, I believe I was the only one following his instructions. Okay, and so when we hear that, we know that we're coming to a little bit of a plug for the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics premium podcast, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. There I'm going to have for you the events of 1960. While we're talking about this election, so much is going on in the world. Not only is Germany going back and forth with how they're going to handle submarine warfare, but you have the creation of the National Park Service and World Series tickets are rising to $5. All of these events, we're going to talk about the events of 1916 on the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. At the same time, there's another issue. Women are protesting for the right to vote. And you wait, by the time you get to 1916, this isn't just some crazy radical idea anymore. This is protesting. There's protest in various cities. There's protests on the, at the White House. And like with so many issues, there's some of your more, say, radical protests going on. And then there are organized meetings, civilized meetings as well. This issue is coming to the forefront. Many states have passed women's suffrage at this point. People think that 1920 is when women got the vote, but that's not necessarily true. In a lot of Western states, they were already voting. Okay, so Wilson has to wade into this issue. He's not for women's suffrage. He doesn't lift a finger for it. Now it's 1960. He's up for re-election, and his opponent, Hughes, outflanks him. He says he'd support a constitutional amendment. So Wilson's forced to go to Atlantic City, meet with a group of suffragettes. And he says something clever. We admire the progress you have made, and we have no quarrel with the method by which you might attain what you're seeking. Mr. Princeton Professor Woodrow Wilson is avoiding the issue of where he'd support. And he's like, go on, go on, and keep uh, your cause going. I admire your fight. I admire your, your spunk. But he's not saying anything he's going to do. He's president. So that passive, vague comment sort of head fakes towards this cause, though. The crowd in Atlantic City really likes Wilson's statement. He's kind of almost on record as supporting the issue, even though he really did nothing of the sort. And he also does something clever. He shuffleboards Hughes' position away by hinting. Hughes is saying that the constitutional amendment is the only way to get it done. There's other methods. We don't, we don't quarrel with the method by which it's done. It's not where the vagueness of his positions end. At the convention in St. Louis, 
Wilson is renominated, of course. There's no oppositions of significance there. He makes it clear that he wants the convention to tone down the rhetoric, particularly about not getting involved in the European war. And he wants everyone to run on this concept of Americanism. Americanism, Wilson says, is what we're for. But nobody can quite figure out what that means. and Nobody's excited about this. We're not going to beat the Republicans with Americanism. So finally, a delegate rises. And without instructions from Wilson, he says, the reason we should vote for Woodrow Wilson is that he kept us out of war. It becomes the battle cry. Posters all over the nation. This is what the local state campaigns are going to run the issue on. But Wilson doesn't like it. He tells his Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniel, This is crazy. I can't keep you out of war. Why, any German lieutenant running a U-boat could put us into war by creating outrage. But at the end of the day, here's what uh, VP Thomas Marshall says. In those long war years, most of the American population were not discriminating and making up their opinion. They reached the conclusion that the Allies, led by the British, were the less corrupter of the two and had a friendly feeling for them. Still, war was abhorrent to the great mass of Americans, and the campaign of 1916 passed off based largely on the fact that the president had kept us out of war. Nobody is able to trace to him any statement of that kind. So Wilson wins, barely, and it's always in doubt, and it's a surprise at the end. I mentioned in a previous cast that 1916 is a comeback story that perhaps 1948 may not truly have been. But as I revisited some of the details researched more, uh, it certainly would not make a great movie. Maybe a really good blog piece in the Atlantic Monthly or Politico about the strategy. I mean, Wilson barely campaigned. He goes to his porch a couple times in the Jersey Shore for some speeches. He issues some press releases. He does end up with one speech in Madison Square Garden. He puts the campaigning in the hands of his trusted aide, Colonel House. And House runs a very narrow, district-by-district turnout effort. And as he says, you know, ignore the distraction of those millions of voters in the national electorate. Don't run for president. Run for justice of the peace. He wanted to localize the 1916 election into tiny districts. Well, in the end, the strategy prevails, but it's narrow. 3,000 votes in California would have turned it between Hughes and Wilson, and it takes a day or two to find out what, just what happened. If he didn't win Ohio, he would have lost the entire Midwest, as Hughes picked up New York and New Jersey, which were states that Wilson had won previously. And yes, Wilson was the governor of New Jersey, and he loses it now in 1916. It's not even clear that Wilson really wants to win too much. He's having some personal issues. He's very tired in office. It's very frustrating. His daughter comes in to say, it sounds like you might have won. And he says, tell it to the Marines. So I don't know if it would make a great movie, the story of 1916. Uh, he's no Harry Truman. He wasn't sitting up there holding the paper that said Hughes wins. <laughs> There's a couple of things that go his way. One, as Marshall said, it's a peace issue. The other is that Hughes ends up insulting the senatorial candidate, Hiram Johnson, who's running in California, a progressive. And we think that a lot of Hiram Johnson voters also selected, uh, went up ticket for Wilson, even though Johnson was a Republican. 
you know, progressives, some of them that had voted for Roosevelt is a particular group that Colonel House is targeting. And we think that in 1912, if you look at that Roosevelt vote when he was running as a bull moose progressive, that Wilson in 1916 gets about one fifth of it. And it's just barely enough to carry the election. Other factors, the socialists don't run their best candidate, Eugene Debs. They run uh, Benson that year. He underpolls. He underpolls in California. So you don't have that third party pull. It was a surprise. Most of the Eastern establishment thought that Hughes was a shoe in. Well, we've got a new one to join the ranks of these few elections, which are utter surprises. It's hard to find anyone who makes the prediction outside of those being paid by campaigns. 1948, 1916, and now 2016. Absolute surprise elections. There are a few that were a little surprising. You know, 1976, maybe some thought Ford would pull it out. 2004, that was one you went to election day. A little bit of a late spike for Kerry. You thought maybe could go either way. This is a totally different dimension of surprise. It's not 1916, all right? We supposedly have better polling methods. We have social media that's supposed to be able to grab people. And we're supposed to know everyone now, all this big data. All of it failed. Really, the public consensus did not see something like this coming. Nor could I, dear podcast listeners, have called it. The signs were there. I remember this devaluing of Ohio that I talked about on Chris Novembrino's cast, Don't Worry About the Government, when he interviewed me. I was saying, this is very strange to have an election where nobody's talking about, like, oh, I'm just losing Ohio in the polls. It's not a big deal. Well, no one has won an election. By the way, I include Ruman and Wilson needed to win Ohio to pull up their surprise victories. No one has won the White House and lost Ohio since John Kennedy. And we talked about how polls hadn't improved much since 1948. Was, they were 5% off in 1948, and they were sometimes 3% off in 2012. I didn't think October surprises like the Access Hollywood had impact, and I was probably right on that point. But the later October surprise might have had some impact, particularly in what turned out to be a low turnout election and the whole email situation. Spending the last week kind of defending yourself in a great position to be in as a candidate underestimated the chances of a GOP winning Pennsylvania. That's the first GOP win in Pennsylvania since 1988. Same with Michigan, 1988. First in Wisconsin since 1984. Mike Dukakis even won Wisconsin. So obviously there's a lot of shock from that. Pennsylvania, the probably the biggest accomplishment, performed well in the Western counties, but also ran even in some like Bucks, it ran very very well. I mean, Hillary Clinton only won by a small amount in Bucks, in Monroe, some of these like high-growth population suburbs of Philly. I feel like we've, over the years, done good homage to the Rust Belt and the potential for swing there. When I've talked many times in different like listener questions episodes about what could be the new swing states one way or another, and I brought up in the past that, you know, Bush came close to winning Wisconsin in 2000. You know, I was wrong on turnout. 
it didn't accelerate because there were two celebrities in the race. It was better than some. It's better than 1988, better than 2000, better than 1996, which were kind of your ho-hum elections. But it's worse than 2012. It's worse than 2008. It's worse than 2004. So at 56%, there was a big drop in people. Low turnouts, like the political equivalent of a low-gravity atmosphere, strange things happen. Donald Trump's the next president. I think the surprise of the result and the states that Democrats lost, like losing Pennsylvania, losing the vaunted blue states. If Obama was right when he made that speech back then about America being really purple, part of purple is red too. I think that the surprise and the shock, though, of like breaking that blue wall belies that the wind is narrow. Trump looks to be getting a tenth of a percent or so higher than the percentage that Mitt Romney got when he was losing. And that's enough for him to win because of where he got it. It looks like from current numbers, it's going to be 47.3 his percentage. He's losing the popular vote by two-tenths of a percent, maybe more. That turns the historical quirk of a president winning by the electoral vote from something that is, oh, it's very rare, to something more common. You know, I have a listener who's in his 30s, and he says, this has happened to me twice now. Now it's becoming more common, maybe, because of the way people are moving around in the country. It did happen previously in 1888. Grover Cleveland exits the White House being mm, not so popular, but not unpopular either. A lot of people sad about him leaving. He did come back. And 1876, which there was a near revolution over when Samuel Tilden won the popular vote but lost the presidency. It's lowish as a winning percentage, you know, 47.3, but it will beat several others. Sounds like we have a history factoid. So I want you to go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and grab your history factoid. And this is the lowest popular vote of winning candidates. And you're going to find Woodrow Wilson with 41%. So Trump in losing the popular vote is still well above that. He's also beating out Zachary Taylor. So go to www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. It's also available on Twitter at my hist at m-y-h-i-s-t it's a great thing to share with your friends share with your students if you're a teacher okay now losing the popular vote it both matters and it doesn't it's not a good thing to lose the popular vote and become president it's an indicator that you certainly the democrats are not destroyed as a party and their ideas aren't utterly rejected they got more votes so that's there just not in the right places Definitely a little bit of a chip that Democrats get. But the argument on the other side, on the Trump side, would be, hey, the rules of the game were an electoral college vote. That's the way our strategy, such that it was, was planned. Uh, if it was a popular vote contest, we would have really gotten out to vote in New York State, for instance. I mean, really add to the popular vote totals. But a lot of those people were apathetic because they knew New York City would turn the state Democrat in any way. So did they vote with enthusiasm? Probably not. The counter to that is, I'm sure Hillary's team probably would have said, well, we could have gotten Alabama, South Carolina, 
Texas. There are a lot of hidden votes. There are people who were too apathetic to come out. We could probably bring out two if they thought their vote had counted more. So you're going to see that argument play out. Right now on the premium podcast, I'm rerunning the Electoral College episode with one remove. That's where we discuss, among other things, how the Electoral College works and why the the framers of the convention, the Constitutional Convention, you don't want to say founders with the Electoral College because so many of the key founders had no idea, never touched the Electoral College. It's a committee that was part of the Constitutional Convention that separated from the rest of the group. It was the Committee of Unfinished Parts or the Committee of Postponed Matters. James Madison is on the committee. Roger Sherman from Connecticut is on the committee. They're constitutional heavyweights at the convention. But other than that, it's a bunch of people who you wouldn't know. And they're the ones that kind of put together the system that you're going to get a popular vote for president with one remove. It'll be the vote of the states, but with a group of people kind of filtering it so that we allow for inconsistencies between voting in states. There are certain states there that weren't even counting a popular vote. So how can they compare with Pennsylvania where this was being done? There's going to be a lack of communication. It's going to be hard to deliver all those votes to one place. If you have the electors meeting in their state capitals, they can provide you with an election result that fits with the communication technologies well of the 1790s, right? Other factors, too. They, they, they definitely want to filter the popular vote and avoid some faction from taking over just by getting a lot of votes in one region. They really wanted to avoid that, too. So with one remove, the Electoral College is set up. You can get the premium podcast at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. It's as low as $2 a month. One lasting benefit of the electoral vote is that you do have a winner on election night. So it took a while. You noticed it took a while to count the popular vote and to determine. It wasn't until the next day that it was like, hey, maybe Hillary Clinton has won the popular vote here. As of election night, it looked like Donald Trump was winning it. So you see that um, there is one benefit. You get an election winner and you don't have to kind of wait the way uh, Wilson and Hughes in 1916, you had to wait. Brent Dollins tweeted me, and my Twitter again is at my hist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Brent says, we eagerly await an explanation of just, and then he writes, whiskey tango foxtrot. <laughs> yeah. Shocking election, no doubt. Obviously, our reliance on polls and on the kind of Nate Silver probabilities, they're really looking like the bell-bottoms of the 2016 election right now. And sorry for those who wear bell-bottoms. But if Silver says 85%. I know that priced in that is that there's a 15% chance of Donald Trump winning. So you can't like totally say that his model is off. Every time we see 80%, we think that means it's absolutely going to happen. No, there's a 20% chance that the other, the alternative hypothesis will happen. But I think the framing and the way that people were using polls as absolute certainty has been proven to be so off. Save those probabilities for the weather. This is the way I see it. Both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton underperformed, but Hillary Clinton underperformed more. Simply said, that's the place to look. You can look at what Trump did, and I know particularly like the Pennsylvania and Michigan wins seem really big. He, he pulled off surprising wins. In some cases, you can look at it as, as three or four Senate races that went really well, and so well that it pulled the presidential ticket in because he underperformed his Senate candidates. 
Mark Rubio, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, Bob Portman in Ohio. They have huge margins on him, and the down ticket pulled him up. This will be my take. You probably won't hear it a lot that while the story is going to be that America is Trump land or something like this, I think to a lot of people, it's just simply I voted. I went out and voted Republican. And a few voted for the GOP Senate candidate and then didn't either left the president spot blank or didn't vote for Trump. So it does belie some of the talk that like this was the way that he ran his campaign is the way to do it. And everything he said was great and it and it helped. His October surprise happened earlier than Hillary's. I think there's a different result of this election, say, as October 10th. But Trump's unfavorability and all his quixotic verbal streaming did have an advantage, I think. It allowed him to hurl himself at his Democratic challenger, to keep pressure. The debates, he just kept challenging. You know, we talked about it in my conversation with Chris Novembrino uh, that, I, that I ran on my feed here, that... He and Pence were doing what challengers need to do, create fear. Not always good because, especially like if you're the media, you, you don't want to be creating fear in the American people all the time, at least in most cases, regular, normal media, right? It's a challenger's job to do that. You have to upset the apple cart. And he kept pressure on, and he didn't care if that added to his unfavorability that much. Some of his campaign advisors obviously did, but he didn't. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. On the other hand, Hillary's campaign, I just think, wasn't inspiring. I just never felt that there was a positive. There was a message about what you're going to get when you vote for Hillary Clinton. I think it was a defensive campaign. It was protecting a lead. And it was, look at this guy. He said all these shocking things. I mean, she lost white women. The idea that Trump is a monster, despite me personally feeling that, all, all of these things that he said, many of them uh, sat there cringing. But I just think that there's a, a large group of voters who ignore it, vote party. Uh, he had something like 15% of people that didn't like him to vote for him for president. Hillary got 9%, but see, he was able to get a higher amount. 
So I didn't feel she articulated what you get out of voting for the Clinton-Kane ticket. I feel that the picking Kane as a vice president was probably a conservative choice. You have Virginia. I mean, you may have had Virginia. You can't ignore the fact that Democrats had a rough primary this year, a party contest. And it wasn't light. It was a big difference in ideology. And Bernie Sanders came in the end and supported him. He was physically present in the Hillary Clinton campaign. But you have to think about all those supporters and how nasty that primary got, at least in the lower levels. It might not have been nasty on the debate stage all the time, but on the Twitterverse, uh, things did get pretty nasty. And if you have supporters who are thinking that, well, she's corrupt because Bernie has hinted at that, I think that just translates into the general, even if you have Bernie standing there. Because for a lot of voters, they're saying, well, I know that that's just some kind of strategy, or even if they still like Bernie, it's just kind of some strategy, and I don't have to listen to that. Party contests aren't good on the incumbent side. I don't think they matter much on the challenging side. You at least have another example here in 2016 that tells you that. It doesn't matter so much. Challengers can beat up each other all they want. Sometimes, like in 2008, it's actually good for the party because you're getting a free advertisement where, you know, otherwise the guy in the White House gets it, right? But when you're in the incumbent party, I don't think you want challenges like this. 1980, 1976, 1968, bitter incumbent party challenges lead to losses. Add 2016 to that list. Yet, you know, and I keep coming back to all this, you could talk all day about mistakes Hillary Clinton made in the campaign, yet she got the popular vote. And so I think the potential, that, that's got to be disappointing. You know, I've heard, to relate this to football, I've heard, you know, if a team's just getting blown out, and believe me, as a New York Jets fan, uh, I, know, I know a little bit about getting blown out in games. If a team's just getting blown out, they leave it on the field, go back to the locker room, and play the next game. And sometimes that's the best game for a football team, that next game after a blowout. But when it's close, when they lose by a field goal, say, by a few points, that's agonizing, and that eats you. There was an illusion created in the past eight years that Democrats were in charge of the politics of the country because Obama was president. And Obama, especially in his last years, had retained a personal approval and a personal credibility and likability. He wasn't necessarily driving politics. And if you look at the second term of President Obama, I don't think that there was enough action and there couldn't have been because he was partially blocked by the opposing party controlling Congress. 2012 was a certainly a decent re-election. But if you really start to examine that 2012, he did lose electoral votes from 2008, where a lot of presidents gained. He did lose popularity from 2008, where a lot of presidents in their re-election gained. So you kind of had the beginnings of a tale there. One of the things we talked about when I talked in the past about five factors helping Hillary, five factors that were helping Trump. One of the quick ones that helped Trump is that Hillary Clinton is not the incumbent president. And when parties try to pass off, president in office, and we try to pass off, you see it with Gore, you see it with Hubert Humphrey, you see it with Eisenhower and Nixon. Your only positive example of recent vintage is George Bush. Ronald Reagan's president, he's able to hand it off to George Bush. But when the incumbent party is not running the president for re-election, the chances go down. Some other things I noticed in exit polls, so Trump's obviously winning over a lot of Obama voters, but talked about this way back when in the uh, 
five biggest fibs in American politics. One of them that I talk about in a, in a your side is going to win type fib is that a lot of people think that voting is absolute love. And it's very tempting to think if you win by 53% of the vote that there's absolute love in the country for your candidate. But there's a lot of reasons people vote. So, yes, it doesn't shock me that some percentage, it's not a large percentage, really, when you consider that Obama got 51%, we're looking at Trump getting 47 Some percentage of people switched from Obama to Trump. Because maybe their vote for Obama wasn't the, the hope poster on the wall type vote. It was more of, oh, well, let's just keep this going. See where it goes. Uh, Trump wins voters over 45 plus. So he's reaching older voters. Trump is also winning voters who decided in the last week. Hillary wins the voters who decided in the summer. Tie in on voters who decided in September. October, Trump wins narrowly, and last week, Trump wins overwhelmingly. So if they decided the election in the last week, they went out for Trump. So I think you see this kind of like last-minute vote. It also kind of tells you maybe definitely Comey letter emails had some effect. WikiLeaks constantly, you know, undermining kind of the left-wing side of the Democratic Party. And, and you see that. You see that opinion out there. And then, well, I was voting for Hillary, but I'm not really excited. Well, some of the people didn't show up. Third parties are something to speak of here. Gary Johnson gets four million, even running a kind of flawed campaign. Million votes for Jill Stein, a little more. And get this, nearly 500,000 write-in votes. Adding up to good chunk, maybe near 5% of the population, not voting for either one of them, far greater than the margin between these two relatively unpopular candidates. One more election to add to the notion that is out there, which I think is very controversial, but it's out there. Talked about it on the Moped and Maserati episode about John Anderson's run, that third-party candidates hurt incumbent parties more. It doesn't matter if they're running against that challenger. It doesn't matter if Gary Johnson and, and Weld particularly is saying, like, Trump is terrible. doesn't matter. A vote for them, you're taking away from the— because the theory is, if something's not right— you're not voting for the incumbent party. That's bad news for the incumbent party. Okay, so I got a couple of questions, and I'm really glad to have questions from the fans of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Facebook site. Uh, Shell Stone uh, just joined, and thank you, Shell, asks, have there been large protests, such as the one held last night after previous election results were announced. Thanks, Shaw. It's highly unusual, and I think this is going to be a continuing factor with the Trump presidency. There's such a large group that are opposed. When you have an electoral vote win, it's the last one was 2000, and we saw the same thing there, where there were protests at the inauguration. <laughs> I said the crowds at the inauguration in 2000 weren't coming to see Ricky Martin. But to see protests on the election eve, that is a little unusual. But I did find two interesting items from 1968. 
November 6, 1968, in the New York Times, it says, Scores of dissidents arrested and some violence erupted yesterday as young radicals, branding the election a fraud and hoax, staged anti-election protests in New York and around the country. And a more interesting little item in New York City in 1968, four long-haired young people, two of them girls, stripped off their clothes and donned the masks of the presidential candidates and pranced nude in the rain-soaked steps of the Board of Elections, protesting the election. This is unusual. I, I would add about anything about protests when you're talking about modern times. I think that the, the presence of smartphones and social media and even the web has added a new dimension to protesting. It's a lot easier to coordinate. Those people in 1968 had to rely on flyers. They'd rely on putting things in campus dorms. They had to rely on like phone chains. I know that when I get a call, I have to call Fred and Bob and they have to call. Those were the type of things that were done. And it's hard to get numbers. I think the students of 68 were able to do it because they were located in colleges and they could get, and there was also a lot of them. So I think you're going to see more protests of all variety now in, than you would have in the past. That's not to knock the, the idea of protesting. That's what I think about that. Mark Heil says, It looks like Dems picked up seats in both houses, though not control. When has that happened, along with losing the White House? Good question. I think, to me, that's a little bit of evidence of what I had said earlier, that you're looking at this election and the story is going to be President Trump and America is now Trump land, and he, he reached out and touched a note with voters, with the American people, and we're all... Trump people now, that kind of thing, without taking everything away from them because there were some achievements. Pennsylvania, geez, you got to keep that in context. So here's another example that is a kind of danger sign, if you will, for an incoming president. It looks like Dems picked up seats in both houses. There's two Democratic senators and a few House seats. Has happened before, though. Uh, 1992. While Bill Clinton's winning the presidency, his party's losing a senator and only gaining three House seats. In 1996, when he runs for re-election, they only gain two House seats and they lose two senators. In 1960, as Kennedy is winning election, a very narrow victory, his party is losing 22 House seats. Not control, but 22 House seats. And his party is losing a senator. That shows you how narrow Kennedy's win was in 1960. 1884, very narrow win, Cleveland. Again, 22 House seats lost by the Democrats while he's winning. 1976, Jimmy Carter, very kind of weak coattails there. He gains only one seat in the House. While he loses a Senate race, his party's going to lose. John Chafee, Republican in Rhode Island, is going to take a seat away from the Democrats. They lose one in the Senate. 2000, very similar, though Bush won, his party loses seats in the House. So what does this mean? That's something that the Congress is watching. If you think Tip O'Neill didn't look at Jimmy Carter and say, look at this, you didn't bring anybody in with you. It is important. It's not going to be important January 20th or January 21st, right? It does become more important down the line as congressmen get scared 
of backing your proposals. Now, again, I think Trump gets something extra. Same thing happened with Reagan. Reagan, Ronald Reagan comes in at a very narrow win, 50%, 50.7%, not much more than Carter got, right? Very narrow win, but the surprise helped him. So there is a little bit of that, that helps Trump, but the smart players in Washington are looking at, hey, Bob Portman got more votes than you. You know, Mark Rubio got more votes than you. I'll side with you where we have common interests, but not going to be a lead right here. Mark Heil also asks that midterms usually go against the president's party. And that's true. Overwhelmingly through history, looking at all the elections, midterms usually go against the president's party. It does not mean you regain the House and you have a pretty big uh, hill to climb to regain the House if you're looking at 2018. Now, there is a, another factor to look at, though. And that's that the same elections that, that we were talking about, where president comes to power and barely has any coattails, well, part of the explanation for the midterm losses is that a president comes in with these big coattails, brings all these House members in that really were just voting, happened to vote for them as they were voting on the up ticket and, and voted down ticket. That when you have these opposite elections where it's more the down ticket pushing the, the, the presidential candidate, the up ticket, when it comes to the midterms, well, they didn't bring a lot in. So there's no tidal wave kind of to go back to recede. You look at elections. 1996, we were talking about where Clinton only brought in two House members on the Democratic side. Well, in 1988, he doesn't lose any. In fact, he gains five House seats. Very rare for a presidential midterm. 1962, where we talked about Kennedy gets the presidency while his party's losing 22 House seats. In 1962, he only loses a couple seats. He was expected to lose big based on this trend. It's also because right before you had the successful resolution of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there's a lot of factors there. But you do have a few midterms that I call staves. And uh, that does tend to happen when you don't have this big swing going in. 1978, not too bad for. House Democrats, even though Jimmy Carter's in office. That's because he didn't bring in a lot, and maybe you don't get a lot. It's something to look at, but generally throughout history, there are few trends that are easier to predict and more sound, more grounded in the history of midterm elections than President's Party loses seats in midterms. That's happened over years. Happened to Reagan, happened to Clinton, happened to Obama. We talked about a lot, and so I feel like I probably need to say something to people who are disappointed right now. I mean, if you supported Trump and you're listening, I don't need to say anything to you. Your, your guy's going to be president. Positives are obvious. You're going to have a good six months or so of having some control over the national agenda. You're going to be driving news coverage, control of foreign policy. You know what uh, you have. So I don't need to talk about that. On the other side, I don't want to be campy here. I don't want to devalue the pain and loss that you're feeling. And uh, I have a number of listeners. Every Twitter feed and Facebook feed these days is kind of looking like pretty grim. Um, People taking mental health days from work. And I I can't counter that too much. I mean, politically, if you're just talking about politics and And maybe try to keep this out of the rest of your life. But just talking about politics, 
you know, it won't be pleasant for you for a time. I, there's no way to sugarcoat that. You're going to see names of people that you utterly dislike who are going to be made cabinet members. You're going to see policies that you don't like proposed. The national conversation changes. I think if you were President Obama's supporter, there are certain things you just never hear because the House was kind of passing bills and, you know, they were either defeated in the Senate or they were vetoed or, the, or they were because a veto was threatened. They weren't going to get anywhere. They didn't become part of the national conversation. Those bills will now become part of the national conversation. But there are a couple of points. If you're a Democrat right now that I could tell you, uh, I kind of view the presidency as mostly about foreign policy. It will take some time. It will be this initial rush of legislation because they got the house, you know, GOP has the houses and things. But uh, domestic issues, change can be slow. If a president tries too hard and gets too wrapped up, this happened with Clinton, this happened with Carter, it gets slowed down and it starts to affect approvals. And everything in Washington is about approval rating. You know, that starts going down. You're going to have weak support for your bills. I don't expect anything but a challenging relationship between President Trump and the GOP Congress. I know on some issues. I mean, if you're talking about a tax cut or some red meat Republican issues, of course. But I think over time there's going to be a pretty rough relationship between GOP. And I don't think you're going to have that lockstep that you had when Bush was in office with the GOP Congress. You have 46 senators. He gained two in this election. It's more than a filibuster-proof majority. So on certain issues, there's going to be filibusters. You have the ability to kind of wash your hands clean of politics right now. What do I mean by that? I, I wouldn't say to anyone to not be involved in politics. You should be involved in politics. You're listening to this guest. You know, you don't have a responsibility. The other side does. And for four years, if you're a Democrat, you you don't have power, but you also don't have responsibility in a sense. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not one of these people who think that's a fun position or that's, oh, it's better to be in the defense. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's better to control the agenda at all times in politics. Absolutely. This is a consolation prize. You really, you don't have that level of responsibility. So as events occur, the incumbent president is what people are looking at. I think that uh, there's a lot of talk now, like, you know, you got to support the president. And I think my way of clarifying, I think people are kind of getting this wrong. Like You as a Democrat don't have to support President Trump in his policies or his politics. You didn't. You won't. You have to support the office of the president. You have to support the federal government. You have to support the United States of America. You know that. The republic moves on, of course. You don't lose your freedom of speech. Nobody's going to stop tweeting. <laughs> you have to support the office of the president. You have to support the, the United States and its endeavors and the things we all agree on. You don't have to give anyone a honeymoon in American politics. That's just a natural trend that tends to happen. Keep using your freedom of speech. Keep... Staying active in your politics. Politics isn't everything. If there are other venues to helping people that you want to help, you're talking about four or eight years. You know, the Republic does move on. Other people historically have definitely been in this situation. Presidents win, presidents lose. In the 1916 election that we're talking about, Woodrow Wilson got his second term. 
but he never got to work on anything domestic again. The country was embroiled in World War I. The very issue that got him elected, peace, he had to reverse. And then when he tried to do things like the League of Nations, he was unpopular and unsuccessful. So American politics doesn't always work the way people predict it will. I think that's a good place to end. My website's www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I think after the now that the election's over, I'm going to get back to the dozen Ronald Reagans. We're going to try to finish that up in 2016. I want to thank you for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.